Well, good evening. Welcome. and It's good to see you all this evening. Let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, where tonight we'll look only at a few verses in 1 Thessalonians chapters 4, chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. Here the Apostle Paul writes these words. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more and to aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, so that you may walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Father in heaven, we pray that as we come to your word tonight that you would cause us to increase in brotherly love. Lord, we pray that you would, in fact, teach us, as you taught the Thessalonians so many years ago, teach us in a way that is effective, that produces what you seek within us. Father, we pray that you would give us this holy ambition as well, that we might love one another by aspiring to live such a life as is pleasing to you, a life in which we work with our hands, mind our own affairs, live quietly so that our lives might be a testimony to others outside and be an act of love to one another. Father, we pray that you would give us wisdom and understanding as we come to your word. You would unite our hearts together through your word. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, tonight I want to begin by talking a bit about the Christian doctrine of vocation. You may not have heard of this uh, doctrine before, or you may never have heard it put that quite that way. But the Christian doctrine of vocation is an important doctrine in Scripture, important teaching of Scripture, that is. And it is uh, one that is important within our broader Protestant heritage as well. And essentially what we understand from the biblical teaching concerning work is that work is part of God's good creation for us. That it's God's desire that we should work and thereby honor him. That we glorify God not just when we come together and worship in the church, but in everything that we do in our lives. And a text like this one before us tonight is a central uh, text, a, a prime text when it comes to establishing this biblical doctrine of vocation. But we can also go back to the very beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 2. There we see that this doctrine, this, this, uh, uh, this uh, goodness of work is established as a principle in creation. And we see there that when God made Adam, he made him to work and to keep the garden. This was before the fall. Work was not something that came about as a response to sin in the world, as a response to the fall. Work was part of God's good order for creation. It's only because of the fall that work became difficult, that work became a, a challenge and a struggle. Nevertheless, when we look at that pre-fall world, we see God's intention for us is a life that is marked by God-glorifying work. So tonight, I want to make this argument as, we, as I seek to unfold this doctrine of vocation in a specific way. I want to argue that we love one another. We love our brothers and sisters in Christ and we love our neighbors by aspiring to an independent life of quiet industry. 
Let me say that again. We love our brothers and our neighbors by aspiring to an independent life of quiet industry. But we can start by considering the Thessalonian context as we consider that argument. And I want you to remember as, what, as, we've, as we've walked through 1 Thessalonians that these Christians, though they had only spent a little bit of time with Paul, Paul had only had opportunity to teach them for a little while, they were already exemplary in conduct. They were exemplary in brotherly love, and they were exemplary in their steadfast faith. And yet, in spite of the fact that they were a strong example, a solid example of brotherly love, there were challenges within their midst. They were challenged to love one another by various, uh, various struggles that arose within their midst. And we saw that two weeks ago when we looked at the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4. In 1 Thessalonians 4, when we, when we considered uh, Paul's admonition to pursue a life of purity, you can see in verse 6, Paul wrote these words. As he challenged them not to live in passion, in the passion of lust, he said, he gave a reason, that no one transgress and wrong his brother in this matter, because the Lord is an avenger in all these things, as we told you beforehand and solemnly warned you. Notice that Paul is challenging them to live with purity as a means of loving their brothers, as a means of not transgressing against one another. So we see that Paul calls them to exercise brotherly love, and we see that they were challenged in this regard. Another way in which we, were, which we see that they will uh, tonight as we consider how they'll be challenged, we consider that they are challenged by uh, idleness, by the, by the uh, temptation to pursue idleness in their lives. We, we're going to see this actually as we walk through 1 Thessalonians, and 1 Thessalonians 5.14, for instance, you'll notice that Paul admonishes, uh, actually instructs the Thessalonians to admonish the idle. We urge you, brothers, he says, admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak be patient with them all. We're going to see also in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 6 through 15, that this seemed to be a continuing problem in their midst. There, in this passage, as I flip uh, a little too far ahead, but in 2 Thessalonians 3, 6 and following, Paul writes, Now we command you, brothers, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you keep away from any brother who is walking in idleness and not in accord with the tradition that you received from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to imitate us, because we were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's bread without paying for it. But with toil and labor we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you. It was not because we do not have that right, but to give you in ourselves an example to imitate. For even when we were with you, we would give you this command, if anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness, not busy at work, but busy bodies. Now such persons we command and encourage in the Lord Jesus Christ to do their work quietly and to earn their own living. So you see that this was a concern in the life of the Thessalonians. We might wonder, why was it that they were struggling so with idleness? Why was it that Paul had to admonish them to work? There are possible, a, a couple of possible explanations. One has to do with a doctrinal error that was creeping in, and we're going to start to see Paul deal with this in the coming weeks. That is, it seems that they were uh, beset by false teaching concerning the day of the Lord and the coming of Christ. 
It seems that some were saying that the day of the Lord had already come, and others might have been expecting that uh, it was absolutely certain that it was to come very, very soon. And in light of that urgency, uh, some in their midst might have decided, well, there's no reason I should work anymore. There's no reason I should do anything but live off the goodwill of others. And so they cease to engage in a life of work. That's possible, and uh, it, it maybe was one of the reasons why some were struggling with this. Another might have to do simply with the culture of that day. There was a, in that culture, something that we call patronage. We, we don't have this so much today. We, we might see it in some areas of our society. But the idea of patronage is that one person would rely on another person of means, a person who was very wealthy, to bankroll them, to fund them in their pursuits in life. And so they wouldn't actually engage in any kind of work that would be productive, but they would engage in other pursuits, pursuits of pleasure, or pursuits of, even a pursuit of the mind. Maybe a philosopher, for instance, might go around teaching. He wasn't necessarily producing anything that would feed himself or his family, but rather he was free to pursue a life of leisure and thought, and uh, he would depend upon the patronage of someone who was wealthier. And you can see how within the Christian community, uh, what might have developed was that people became dependent upon the patronage of others, upon the support of others, because these Thessalonians were so disposed to love one another. And some were perhaps taking advantage of that, uh, that desire to lovingly care for and, and uh, help others. And that wasn't the example that Paul left them. We saw that in 2 Thessalonians 3. We've already seen that in 1 Thessalonians, where Paul speaks of his example in chapter 2, verses 3 through 12, and note especially verse 6 through 7. I remind you, here Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 3, For our appeal does not spring from error or impurity or any attempt to deceive, but just as we have been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, though we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. But we were gentle among you, like, nursing mother, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but also our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. What I want you to note there is simply that Paul and his ministry to them could have made demands of them as an apostle. He could have demanded that they support him. And we'll see that in verse 9 and following. But rather, out of love, the kind of love that, that he likens here to an affectionate mother caring for her own children, he gave of his very own self to the Thessalonians. And so in verse 9 he goes on to say, For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil we worked night and day, that we might not be a burden to any of you, while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses, and God also, how holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how, like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you, and encouraged you, and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God, who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. So by way of reminder, I simply present that again to you, how important Paul's example was to the Thessalonians. He himself, along with Silas and Timothy, worked hard. They worked with their hands. Paul was a tent maker. They supported themselves, and they did not depend upon the Thessalonian church, not because they had no right to do so. They were working in another way and sharing the gospel with them. 
but as a way of, sh- uh, uh, of establishing an example for them to follow, as a testimony to them. They worked hard. They worked with their hands to support themselves and to remain independent so the Thessalonians might learn to do likewise in their own life. Now, as Paul again encourages them then, as we consider that context and the challenge, as he encourages them to live this kind of life of brotherly love that is characterized by work, we can see that the text before us, these four verses, break down into two sections. The first section involves an affirmation. Paul affirms their brotherly love. He affirms their brotherly love, that they already are demonstrating brotherly love toward one another. So he says, now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you. It may be that he's responding to a question that they sent with Timothy, that Timothy came uh, with a question they had about how they ought to love one another, and Paul's response is to say, you actually don't need anyone. You know what, what you need to know. You don't need anyone to write to you. Nevertheless, Paul will write more to them about this subject. Because though they are already demonstrating brotherly love as people who have been taught by God, it doesn't, they don't need Paul to teach them. God has already taught them. And here he's not saying that God has spoken to you from heaven and told you what kind of brotherly love you ought to exhibit. But rather he looks to, you can see in verse 10, he looks to the simple fact that they're already known for their love as proof positive that indeed God has effectively taught them how to love one another. He says, for that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. We recall again from chapter 1 how their life had become a testimony, a living testimony among the Macedonian churches. There in verse 8 of chapter 1, Paul said, For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere. So we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us, uh, uh, concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come. Their life, their newfound faith, their love for Paul and for the others and also for uh, the brothers and sisters or fellow Christians throughout the region had become so exemplary that, it, that, the, that all the churches in Macedonia knew about it. This is why Paul can say you don't need anyone to write to you. He's affirming that they already are living in a way that demonstrates that they know what it means to love one another. Paul's not simply buttering them up with some positive reinforcement. He's acknowledging the true reality in their life. Nevertheless, there's still a way in which they can increase. And so the second half of this passage then is an exhortation, an encouragement, how they can increase in brotherly love for one another. And that's true for us. It's going to chasten and challenge us. Though we might love one another in our own context, there are always ways in which we can abound all the more in love for one another. We can increase in the quality and the degree of our love. And in this particular situation, we can do that through a quiet life. And so as I further my argument, I I want to make this simple case. The quiet life that Paul urges upon them is the specific way he wants them to increase in their love for one another. Look at what he writes at the end of verse 10. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. That is to love one another more and more. And then he says, and to aspire 
to live quietly. And the case I'm making is that he's not tacking on a second encouragement, something that is unrelated to brotherly love, but rather giving them a specific way in which they can increase in brotherly love by aspiring to live a quiet life, to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you, he says. Now, that's not something that we would normally associate with aspiration or ambition, right? When you think of a person who's ambitious, you don't think of a person who's ambitious to live quietly. You don't think of a person who's ambitious to remain in the shadows, so to say. An ambitious person does not normally move to a sleepy little town off the beaten path, right? That's not the kind of aspiration that we would expect an ambitious person to seek. But that's what Paul is telling the Thessalonians to do. He's telling them to aspire to a quiet life, not a life out front and center, not a life where they're the uh, talk of the town, not a life where um, they are the movers and shakers of the world. And so that's a striking thing for him to say as he calls them to live this kind of, uh, this different way, to a, this different kind of aspiration. What he wants them to do is to, it, it's simply mind your business, right? Focus on your own affairs. Don't focus on all the affairs of others. And we hear that language of busy bodies from 2 Thessalonians 3. He wants people to be busy in their own work, not busy bodies, busy with the affairs of other people. And to work with their hands. In that culture, uh, manual labor, one who worked with his own hands, that would not be something that others would look at and respect, not in the Greek world. In the Jewish world, manual labor was thought, was recognized as a good and godly thing. But in the Greek world, it was not something that would be highly regarded. Those who were nobles, those who were honorable in the Greco-Roman world would, uh, would hire out servants and slaves to do the manual labor for them. But they themselves would engage in, engage in the kind of work that was typical of people who had great leisure, uh, reading and, and, uh, books and making uh, scribal copies of, of great uh, philosophical works and that kind of thing. They would engage in that whole patronage system as well, and so they would withdraw from manual labor. Paul wants to remind them of the dignity of this thing and encourage them to pursue that kind of work as we instructed you, he says. We saw that already in Paul's own example, and I, I want to draw your attention again once more by way of reminder to the fact that his example was not just an example of hard work and industry. His example was an example of love. Notice how he tied the two things together. That in working so hard, when he came to bring them the gospel, he was like a loving mother, like a mother with her children, affectionately desirous of you, he, is the language that he used there. He also, at one point, compares himself to a loving father with them. The way in which he demonstrated his great love for them was by working hard with his own hands. And he wants them to see that they can do the same for one another by engaging in this kind of life, by pursuing their vocations in such a way where they glorify God. And we should be encouraged by that. We often, we, I, I made this point two weeks ago. I talked about the, uh, the will of God for you and how Paul says this is the will of God early in chapter 4, your sanctification. In that case, it was that you abstain from sexual immorality. Sometimes, especially young people, we ask ourselves, what's God's will for my life? 
And when we ask those kinds of questions, we're normally thinking big thoughts, or great ambitions. We're thinking of maybe we'll go overseas and we'll uh, serve as a missionary somewhere. Maybe we'll accomplish some great thing. Maybe we'll write many books that people will read for centuries to come. What might we accomplish for the kingdom and these high and exalted ambitions? And here Paul is saying, I do want you to have an ambition. I want you to have a humble ambition, a quiet life, one where you work with your hands. And I want you to know that that is glorifying to God. I want you to know that that honors him. I want you to know that that is a way that you can honor him because it's a way that you can love others, where you're independent of their support. You're able to support yourself and be generous to others. That's the kind of thing that he's calling them to. Why is this loving? As I've just said, because when you are self-sufficient in terms of your daily needs, you are free to serve, and you are not a burden to others. And that is loving. It's not what one might think of as a great ambition, but it is also God's will for us. Now, I want to say something about uh, a qualification on this point. Uh, this is an aspiration. It's an ambition. There are certainly instances in our lives where we're not going to be able to fulfill this aspiration for, one, for reasons outside of our control. And so we do need to interpret this in light of the broader biblical teaching. Other factors uh, that, we might, uh, that, that uh, might affect our ability to uh, fulfill this Maybe our age, maybe simply our abilities or disabilities. It might be unexpected trials in our lives. And Paul is not saying that someone who falls upon hard times or someone who's getting up in years is, uh, should feel bad and should feel guilty if they need the help of other believers within the body of Christ. He'll say to Timothy, as he writes to Timothy, that uh, in the case of older widows in the church, that they're to be enrolled. And what he means in that context, they didn't have social security back then. They didn't have pension plans. And sometimes, in the case of an older widow, if she did not have any children who could support her, Paul was telling Timothy, the church needs to take on the support of this person. The church needs to help that person. So you can see in that, in that particular context, Paul is saying it is right for someone to depend upon others, given that context in, his or in, her, in her life, right? But he says in that particular context, Timothy, that younger widows are to be encouraged to marry if, uh, the, if the possibility is, is, is open to them. And the older widows who have children who are able to support them should rely first on them to support. So he deals with some of these challenges and recognizes that there are situations where one Christian might depend upon another. And we can see also in Paul's life how there were times when the Jerusalem church came under such persecution that he would take gifts from other churches back to Jerusalem to provide them support. There were circumstances outside their control. There were circumstances in their lives where they really did need to depend upon the generosity of other Christians. When we are living in such a way where we aspire to this kind of life, where we're able to support ourselves, where we work hard, we are free to be a means by which we can bless others who might be in that kind of need. But there are times where Christians, any, any one of us, might find ourselves in that kind of need rightly. And so we shouldn't think that any situation where we depend upon the generosity of other Christians should be a cause for guilt. 
And I, I do say that, I want to give you that qualification because sometimes um, you can do a great service uh, by letting others serve you, by receiving their generosity. I think particularly of the, the, uh, the young men in this church who are so able to work and so able to serve. And then I think of some of the, uh, the elderly among us to receive some of the service from them is actually a uh, great benefit to them. It's a great benefit to their character and to their building up. And now I'm putting some of the young men on the spot. But, uh, uh, so don't think that any kind of help is um, somehow uh, contrary to what Paul was teaching here to the Thessalonians. But it would be a wrong thing if things were in reverse, where an able-bodied young man who is able to work with his mind or with his hands, who has no reason not to be working, is a loafer and living off the generosity of others. And we would be right to challenge that guy, get a job, get some, uh, learn some work ethic, and we can find someone in the church who will let you work on his farm so you can learn it. And uh, you know, that would be a right context. And you can, so you can start to see what Paul is trying to teach these Thessalonian Christians, is they're to take on a different frame of mind. This morning in Sunday school, we talked a little bit about the humility that Christ called his disciples to embody. And we can see that here as well when we think about um, his call for Christians to work with your own hands, and to mind your own affairs. This is a call to embrace a life that is maybe humbler than someone might like. But it is a godly life. It is one to which he calls us and one to which he encourages us. So I do want to leave that qualification with you. But I also want to encourage you. Aspire to this kind of life where you work with your own hands, and mind your own affairs. Now there's a reason for this. There's a reason that Paul gives for why this kind of life is, uh, is a holy aspiration, is a God-glorifying aspiration. In fact, there are two reasons. The, the last one we've already seen, so that we might not be dependent, so that we might be independent. That frees us then, by implication, to serve others. But the other reason is a way of loving our neighbor. I'm distinguishing here between brotherly love and love for our neighbors. Love for our neighbors is very general. It includes believer and unbeliever alike. But brotherly love is specific. It's a kind of love that exists within the body of Christ. It's a key and central aspect of our life together. And it's different than our love for neighbor. It doesn't mean that we don't love our neighbors. It's just that the way in which we demonstrate and manifest that love is going to be different. But this is not just uh, a way, by, by aspiring to this kind of life, it's not just a way that we love one another. It's also a way that we love our neighbors, that we love our community. How so? Because it is a good testimony. It's a good testimony to those who are outside. Look at verse 12. Why has he given this instruction? So that you may walk properly before outsiders. Now, think for a moment about the situation, or what you remember of the situation in Thessalonica, from Acts chapter 17. In fact, let's turn back there for a moment and see. In Acts chapter 17, you remember how Paul spent three successive Sabbath days in the synagogue, reasoning with the people in the synagogue that Jesus is the Christ. Some believed, many did not. And after that, after he left the synagogue, those who believed, they formed this church here in Thessalonica. But in verse 5 in chapter 17, we see that Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, 
and attacked the house of Jason, who's one of these early Christians, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, that, that them refers to Paul and Silas, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received them. And they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. The people, the city authorities, were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Now what I want you to see there in that context is that these men, their reputation has suffered in the community in which they lived. They've been taken before the city authorities. And they've, uh, the, the, these people have lodged a weighty accusation against them. Some of the things they were saying are built on truth. They were proclaiming that Jesus is the Christ. They were proclaiming that he is a king, uh, that he is the Lord, that he is uh, a greater king than Caesar himself. They were teaching them, and they did believe that. But they certainly had not turned the world upside down in the way that, the, uh, that this mob had turned Thessalonica upside down. In one sense, the world was being turned upside down by the gospel going forth. But not in the sense they were causing disorder and causing strife, and yet their reputation was uh, based on these false accusations and, and uh, these deceits was harmed in their community. What, what Paul does not say to them is, therefore what you need to do is hire a good lawyer and lodge a complaint with the city officials and make your case so that you can restore your reputation and win this case. Paul instead tells them to make your case in another way. Make your case by demonstrating the transformation that Christ works in his people as he transforms you into a people who live this kind of life that no reasonable, no rational city authority could look at and say, I don't want that in my community. What do these person, people do? They just live quietly, they work with their hands, they're respectable, they're respectful, and that would be a good testimony and discredit those who were falsely accusing them and bring credit upon Christ because they could ultimately point to him and say, he's the one that did this work in us, this work of transformation. They could ultimately point to the fact, as Paul said, God is the one who taught them to live this kind of life. We can certainly apply that in our own lives as we think about the challenges that we face. I've said this from time to time, but we live in a time where there are many voices in our society who are seeking to encourage us to put aside some of our Christian convictions about godliness, about the kind of life that God would have us live, because things just seem rather urgent. Things, the, the, the situations that we face in our culture and in our day seem so pressing that those things need to be put aside so that we can uh, start some kind of movement that will win back society, that will uh, uh, further the cause of Christ, in, whether it be in the schools or whether it be in the communities or in the government or this or that. And I don't think that any of us has ever faced a situation that's more urgent than the Christians in Thessalonica faced. They could have lost their lives, certainly their livelihoods. Certainly Jason had to put up a large sum of money in order to, uh, in order to go back about his daily life. And Christians all across the empire were being persecuted, were being killed. Paul himself was being stoned. And yet from place to place, wherever he went, 
one thing in terms of the ethical requirements of the Christian life that he emphasized again and again and again and again was what? Love for one another. Nothing about those experiences pressed Paul to say something right now is more urgent than that we love one another. And we can see that in all the lives of the apostles. It's true in John. For those who, have, who, who heard us work through John's epistles. How often did he speak of loving one another? All over his letters. How often did he speak about some other ethical principle that would displace love for one another? Never. This is crucial to the Christian life. This principle is absolutely fundamental. And there is not going to be something in our life, ethically speaking, that is more fundamental than this. Now we might say, well, wait a second. The first great commandment is that we love the Lord our God with all our heart, with all our soul, with all our mind, and with all our strength. That we love our neighbor as ourself is the second great commandment. And yet, as we saw from 1 John, these are friends that need not be reconciled. They are in complete harmony. If we love God, we will love one another. If we fail to love one another, John told us, we're not loving God. I want you to see this, how important it is to think about all of the ethical challenges that face us in terms of how we might love others. We do that. We do that, and I want to commend you for that, like Paul commended the Thessalonians. People in this church help others with their daily needs, people who are recovering from surgeries or illnesses, helping with laundry or a little bit of financial help or meals or food, praying regularly for another, volunteering to help at the camp in different ways. Those are commendable demonstrations of love for one another, and I want to encourage you to continue doing that. Many of you have done that. And I can say, in many ways, you are taught by God. But we can increase in that. We can increase by continuing to learn how to apply these two great commandments in harmony with one another in our lives. You see, when brotherly love in our minds, when we think that a brotherly love is something that is more important than love for God, then what we call brotherly love or love for our neighbor really is love for ourselves in disguise. Think about Proverbs 3, 11, and 12. There in that passage, Solomon speaks about the way in which God loves us in terms of his discipline. The Lord, he says, don't despise the discipline of the Lord, for the Lord disciplines the one he loves like a father disciplines his son. Now think of the opposite of that. Think of a father who does not discipline his son who does not discipline his children and says, well, I love them. I, I just can't do it. I, I love them too much. We would rightly say that that's not love. You don't love them. You just love yourself. You're too lazy or you're too unconcerned with their future and with their development of their character. If you loved them, you would discipline them. That's what the Lord does for us. You see, when we don't have, when we say that brotherly love is so important that it outweighs doing what God would have us do, or living as God, uh, imitating God's character himself. We present, we, 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 we put brotherly love as if it's more important than love for God. That's not really brotherly love. It's not really love for neighbor. It's love for self. In the same way, when we take love for God, and we say it's so important that in this instance where I would otherwise love my brother, 
I, I don't need to anymore because love for God is so important. That's not love for God either. That's love for self. And we have biblical examples of this very thing. Think of the Pharisees. In Mark chapter 7, the Pharisees, uh, Jesus calls them out because they had this established practice that they called Corbin. The idea of Corbin is simply that um, you would have, uh, a person would come and let's say he had um, some kind of possession, maybe a field, maybe a home. He would declare it Corbin, that is, devoted to God. And then he would find that his mother or his father needed him to provide some support in their old age that, they, that he did not anticipate. So he comes to the Pharisees and he says, I have this field that I designated as Corbin, but now my mother is in need and I'd like to sell that field and use that money to support my mother. And in that instance, Jesus says, because of your tradition of Corbin, you tell that person, this is what the Pharisees would instruct them, they'd say, well, you can't do that. You can't sell that field because it's devoted to God. And God is more important than your mother. And what Jesus says is, so what you do is you overturn God's very clear commandment, honor your father and mother for the sake of your tradition. It's not honoring to God. They're not loving God. And the Pharisees rationalized it by saying, oh, well, well, God's more important to love than one's mother and father. We can do the same kind of thing in our own life when we rationalize away a need to love others need to show grace to others who are suffering, who are struggling in various trials, and we would perhaps distance ourselves from them or say, oh, no, we, 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 we can't help that person or show grace to them for some reason. And we'd explain it as, well, we just love God too much. We just need to obey God too much. Paul, John, all of the apostles would have us understand that one who fails to love brothers and sisters in Christ, is failing to love God. We saw that this morning even in in Sunday school when Jesus taught that one who receives a child in my name receives me. And one who receives me receives him who sent me. Right? The reason I'm going through this, and it it may seem a little bit abstract and a little bit difficult, is because in our in our modern culture, very often within the church and without the church, we have all kinds of clever ways of pitting love against love in one way or another so that we excuse ourselves from doing that which God would have us do. For example, I I read an article recently of a uh, a pastor even who was advocating for what's called polyamory, that is uh, loving many different individuals in in an affectionate, uh, intimate way essentially no different than polygamy. And I was shocked by this, the, the, the fact that this person uh, once associated with uh, a biblical uh, denomination, a, a biblical uh, confession of faith, but now is advocating for this thing. What was his argument? His argument was a bunch of gibberish based in love. God loves everybody. He loves a lot of people. It's nonsense. It's ridiculous. But this is the way the modern world thinks. Somehow that we can excuse all of, our, uh, all of our passions simply by trotting out the word love and pitting one love against another. Love, true biblical love, is supremely known in what? In the sending of the Son by the Father, an act of humility, of sacrifice, and giving by which God fulfilled his covenant promises to his people. Love's not an emotion, a feeling, or an act of passion. And we are called to exemplify the same kind of love that is marked by humility 
and sacrifice and giving. And which should occur in the context of covenant faithfulness. A husband showing covenant faithfulness to his wife, as we saw in the beginning of 1 Thessalonians 4. A member of a church showing covenant faithfulness to their church by living in that community and serving the needs of others and loving others in a way that is fitting one church member to another. This kind of act of giving, this ki these kinds of actions of sacrifice, these kinds of actions of humility, that's what true biblical love is. We need to learn to reason in this way. Now, a more common, a more likely way where, we, where people might err in our day is by failing to prioritize the principle of love in our ethical reasoning in any way whatsoever. I'll give you another example. When we think about the Sabbath issue and the way that sometimes Christians might come into conflict about what is required of us on Sunday. Are we to rest or are we not to rest? And the argument go that the people who argue for the Sabbath often argue on the basis of a creation principle. The Sabbath was there in creation. Genesis chapter 2, 1 through 3. Therefore, it's enduring for all time. I think that's a strong argument. It's a solid argument. But I also want to note simply this, that Jesus prioritized mercy, which is another way of speaking of God's love for us, in his evaluations of these same issues. Matthew chapter 12, verse 7, when he was confronted by the uh, Pharisees because he healed a man on the Sabbath, he challenged them. He said, if you had learned what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless said the same thing, very similar thing in Matthew 9, 13, when they confronted him about his association with those they perceived to be sinners. That creation principle is hermeneutically right, and Jesus used this principle. But if the key is to establish priority, then love is prior to a creation principle because love is true of the being of God. It is eternal. It will last forever, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13, 8. God is love. It's true of his being. And so, though Paul and Jesus himself reason on the base of basis of creation very often, something that is of greater precedence, if you will, is the truth that God is love. And this is why we see this everywhere in Paul's reasoning. In 1 Corinthians 8, when he deals with the challenge of whether or not these newly, uh, new believers who come from a pagan environment can eat food that was part of a sacrifice to idols. Ultimately, he reasons on the basis of love. What is the loving thing to do for someone whose conscience might be wounded if they see you eating this meat? And he does the same thing in Romans 14. What is the loving thing to do if someone's conscience is wounded because you don't participate in the acts that they think are right, even if they're wrong about it? How can we love one another? He prioritizes this fundamental truth, these two fundamental commandments. That we are called to love God with all of our being. We are called to love one another. It doesn't mean that creation principles aren't right. It means that we must, as we reason through ethical challenges in our life, never forget the fundamental importance of considering what is loving to do. So as we come back to 1 Thessalonians 4 and we consider this particular example, Paul does the very same thing as he deals with this challenge in the Thessalonian church. They are challenged because some in their midst seem to be freeloaders, if you will. Some in the midst are living in idleness or not working hard. 
And Paul wants them likewise to understand that's not loving. You want to know about brotherly love? You want to increase in love for one another? Aspire to live quietly, to mind your own affairs, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. We might say, as Paul instructed by his example, so that we might walk properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. And the very same instructions are equally applicable in our context in our day. We can love one another by living this kind of quiet life, by serving one another, by being able to help those who might be in need among us because we are industrious, we work hard, we do it in order to honor God by loving one another. Let's pray. Father in heaven, Lord, we recognize that we are unable in our own strength to do that which you command. We don't have it within us to love you with all of our being. We don't have it within us to love one another as Christ loved us. But you, O oh Lord, are gracious. You are able to teach us. Lord, I pray that you would take these words, your word from 1 Thessalonians 4, from so many other texts that we've considered tonight, that you would impress them upon our hearts. May we be a people that are chiefly marked by our love for one another. And as our Lord taught us, that the world might know us by our love for one another. May it be a testimony of your grace in our lives. May it be a way in which people come to know the truth of the gospel as they see us as a people who live with humility and sacrificial love. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.